Dave Chang is an avid student and fan of sports, music, art, film, and of course, food. With a rotating cast of guests, they have conversations that cover everything from the creative process to his guests' guiltiest pleasures. Follow The Dave Chang Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. February 1999, Grammy night. Warren Hill, lightly dazed, but totally luminous, frozen in time, in a time-honored, oops, I won too many Grammys pose. You know this pose? It's classic. It's when you win too many Grammys in one night and they dump all the Grammy statues in your arms and take pictures of you while you stand there looking dazed and hopefully luminous. Think Adele in 2012, cradling at least five of her six statues from that night like a giant, clunky, gilded baby. This was for Adele's album 21. In 2017, she won five more Grammys for her album 25, and she held all five of those statues at one time in a simple, elegant V shape with her elbows spread as wide as possible. Veteran savvy, think Bruno Mars in 2018, holding the six Grammys he won for 24K Magic and wearing sunglasses and looking extra pleased with himself. As well he should. Excellent structure to Bruno's Oops, I Won Too Many Grammys pose. A four Grammy foundation at the bottom with two more on top. Think Beyonce in 2004, holding the five statues she won that night in pretty much a straight horizontal line. Almost military formation. Physically improbable as that seems. Geometry bows to Beyonce. This is Dangerously in Love era. Five wins for Beyonce, but none in major categories. Curious. Think Taylor Swift in 2010. Fearless era, holding three Grammy statues and, yes, dropping a fourth. In one famous picture, it's in midair. Elbow height, it's gone. Taylor's mouth is frozen in an O shape, as in, oh shit. Taylor Swift award shows, always delightful. Two more, Alicia Keys, 2002. Lavished with industry praise for her debut album, Songs in A Minor. Five Grammys, chaotic structure, she's sitting down, that's cheating. One statue balanced in her lap, three scooped up in her right arm, one held aloft in her left hand, just chaos. And finally, my personal favorite in this genre, Nora Jones. 
Grammy Night 2003. Her gentle blockbuster debut album, Come Away With Me, wins her five statues in my favorite of Nora's many remarkable oops, I won too many Grammys poses. She's got one statue coyly tucked under her chin. But there's also the one where she looks extra sheepish, embarrassed almost, sort of a yeesh face, like the grimace emoji. The grimace emoji is by far my personal most used emoji. Make of that what you will. But there's another photo where Nora is, yes, dropping her fifth statue. It's also elbow height. It's also gone. Her mouth is also frozen in an O shape, but there's another photo from a split second later where the statues dropped another foot with the golden gramophone horn pointing pretty much straight down. Disaster is imminent. And Nora's looking right at the falling statue and looking genuinely aggrieved as though she just actually dropped a baby. It's hilarious. Of all of these sheepish Grammy winners, Warren Hill looks, I think, the most serene the coolest and the calmest. Five statues in her arms, no real structure, just an unfussy but highly effective jumble. No way she drops one ever. She's smiling, she's beaming, but she's not mugging for all these cameras. No need to oversell the moment. Radiant with self-possession, which is odd, maybe. What fascinates me about the oops I won too many Grammys pose is the element of embarrassment, of unease, of trepidation. Just this tangible vibe of, oh shit, whether they drop one or not. It's too many Grammys, too many statues, too many cameras. It's too much lavish industry praise. It's too much attention. It's too much. And in all of their faces, in Adele's and Bruno's and Beyonce's and Taylor's and Alicia's and Nora's, you see, of course, immense pride and satisfaction and wonder and politely muted delight. But you also see just the tiniest hint of like recoiling. Their wave is cresting, but already pulling back. They're pulling it back. What I at least imagine I can read to some extent on all of their faces is I never want this much attention again. It's odd that in this photo anyway, I don't much get that vibe from Lauren Hill at all. Lauren had, of course, won five Grammys that night for her debut solo album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which is, I think it's fair to say, a full-blown masterpiece. I don't think I've used that word here yet, not even in the cake episode, and I'm glad I haven't used that word until now. Miseducation came out in August 1998, and half a year or so later, it became the first ever rap album to win the Grammy for Album of the Year. No black woman has won the Grammy for Album of the Year since. Curious. That night at the Grammys, Lauren had, of course, also performed. She sang the song To Zion, Carlos Santana on guitar. Zion was Lauren's firstborn son, born in August 1997. I love this song. I love pretty much all these songs. But To Zion immediately hit me a little harder somehow. Bowl is crazy, sir, to Zion is a song about the predatory music industry advising Lauren Hill not to have her baby and Lauren Hill refusing this advice. An excellent song choice for the night she historically kicked ass at the Grammys. Way before I even had kids, I found To Zion profoundly moving. This part especially. Look at your career, they said. But instead, I chose to use my heart. Simple, elegant, perfect. I hate to tell you this. It's a wonderful, precious, joyous thing. But still, I'm very sorry if I'm the person to inform you 
that Zion Marley, Warren Hill's firstborn son with Rohan Marley, the first of their five children together, Zion Marley and his publicity-shy girlfriend celebrated the birth of their daughter, Zephania, in 2017, which makes Lauren Hill a grandmother. She is now a grandmother many times over and makes me, personally, 850 years old. Tough break for me. Congrats to everyone else involved. That's a killer hook, though. Always love that hook. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we're doing X Factor by Lauren Hill. Legit, there's like 10 other songs on the miseducation of Lauren Hill we could have done, but it's X Factor. I feel strongly about this. Tough call, though. For example, for the last several weeks, my favorite song in the history of recorded music has actually been a miseducation deep cut called Nothing Even Matters. Lauren Hill duetting with D'Angelo. You gotta be kidding me. Nothing even matters. Nothing even matters. Just Lauren Hill softly singing no more, no more, no more in the background behind D'Angelo. Unbelievable. Is this a deep cut? It's not a deep cut. It's track 12, but I sense I'm super late to this one. There's so much loud and brash and relentless excellence on Miseducation that usually the album somehow totally wipes me out before I even got to Nothing Even Matters. It's that kind of album that for a decade or two, I could somehow overlook two of the greatest R&B singers of their generation singing a sumptuous slow jam love song to each other. The idea is that nothing even matters except for each other. These buildings could out to sea Some natural catastrophe Part of why I'm obsessed with this song right now is that I keep trying to guess how many finger snaps are coming and somehow I always guess wrong. It's bizarre. It's a simple pattern, actually, but I suppose I keep getting distracted. Still there's no place I'd rather be Cause nothing even matters to me This is D'Angelo three years after his first album, 1995's Brown Sugar, and two years before his second album, 2000's Voodoo. Featuring, of course, the hit single Untitled, How Does It Feel, whose video, of course, turned D'Angelo into an absurdly chiseled sex god, as though he'd spent six years pumping iron in preparation to himself hold, like, 35 solid gold Grammy statues simultaneously. Warren and D'Angelo, in this moment, singing to one another here in 1998, were arguably the two humans' best poised to push R&B and rap-conversant R&B, especially into the 21st century, and poised to define and dominate rap conversant R&B in the 21st century. A larger part, though, of why I'm obsessed with Nothing Even Matters right now is the poignance of the fact that Lauren and D'Angelo have both spent the vast majority of the past 20 years confounding those expectations, frustrating our desires, discarding our adulation, and refusing to perform in any sense of that word. It turns out they were totally serious about what all didn't matter. At times, both Lauren and D'Angelo have struggled, personally and publicly, of course, but at other times, they've just declined, bowed out, 
shrugged off the mantle of greatness. It could be that our adulation poisoned both of them. My former Ringer colleague, Lindsay Zolads, wrote a great piece about the 20th anniversary of miseducation back in 2018. And she quotes the critic and author Joan Morgan, who wrote a whole book about the 20th anniversary of miseducation. And in that book, her fellow hip-hop scholar, Dream Hampton, says, I remember thinking, I wish we could deal soberly with Lauren. We should have been more sober about how we took her on. What we did instead was crown her fucking Nina Simone. We did the same thing with D'Angelo. We told him he was Marvin Gaye, and we told Lauren that she was Nina Simone, and they each had one fucking album. It wasn't fair to them because they started to believe it. D'Angelo eventually put out a third album, but the point stands. Each individual finger snap and nothing even matters represents another Grammy statue Lauren and D'Angelo dropped before they could even win it. None of that matters. They won't sing for us if it doesn't bring them happiness. They won't release a new album that reminds us of their beloved old albums if that feels like work to them, if that feels dishonest, if that feels confining. Lauren Hill's entire career is animated by the tension between what the world wants from her and what she needs from the world or what she thinks we need from her. Sometimes that means she sings, but more often, it very much does not. The way forward seemed clear enough back in 1993 when Lauren Hill, then only 17, co-starred with Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act 2, colon, Back in the Habit. Great pun. This is Lauren and her co-star Tanya Blount singing Their Eye is on the Sparrow. Great scene. Overall, the original sister act was way better, but that's what you get for trying to make lightning strike twice. And I sing because I'm free. Lauren Hill was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1975. She knew what she wanted to be early on, and I'm guessing she knew what everyone else wanted her to be even earlier than that. Here she is in 1988, about to do amateur night at the Apollo. How old are you, Lauren? I'm 13. Lauren's 13. What song are you singing? Who's loving you? Who's loving you? Well, come on, Lauren. We're going to love you. Sing for us. Sing for us. Yeah. Then Lauren gets booed. This clip resurfaces periodically and triggers a bunch of blog posts, some with the headline, Young Lauren Hill Gets Booed Off Stage. But as author, critic, and fellow podcaster Hanif Abdurraqib noted a while back, young Lauren Hill for sure does not get booed off stage. She gets booed quite robustly, but she guts it out and finishes the song to equally robust applause. Fast forward three years to 1991, and 16-year-old Lauren Hill has joined the cast of CBS soap opera As the World Turns, playing the role of Kira Johnson, a troubled young runaway who falsely accuses Scottish adventurer Duncan McKechnie of making sexual advances toward her at the Earl Mitchell Center. Yes, that Duncan McKechnie, the fan-favorite As the World Turns character who faked his own death 
from 1981 to 1986. That was an actual plot line on this show. What was he doing for five years? He broke out of jail in 87 and was found not guilty of murder later in 87. And anyway, it turns out that guy wasn't even dead. Thank you to SoapCentral.com for that information, which I'm sure is entirely accurate. Here's Kira singing You Who Brought Me Love at, I believe this is Duncan McKechnie's Wedding. Actually, one of Duncan's three marriages. This clip is worth seeking out just for the half dozen fraught, melodramatic soap opera gazes exchanged between various tremulous as the world turns characters as Kira is singing. This show was on the air for 54 years. Roberta Flack had sung You Who Brought Me Love on her 1988 album Oasis, by the way. I think it's fair to say Lauren does Roberta justice. And not for the last time. These words won't say no for you who brought me love. Fast forward three years and Lauren Hill, aka L Boogie, has joined an adventurous teenage hip-hop trio called Fuji's. As in Refugees, also featuring Haitian singer-rapper-producer Wyclef Jean and his singer-rapper-producer-cousin Praz. The first Fuji's record, released in 1994, called Blunted on Reality, and it stinks. I Well, okay. I had a remarkably severe adverse reaction to Blunted on Reality the first time I heard it. I think because it only occasionally sounds like the Fugees as the larger world would come to know and love and I suppose mourn them. Or more to the point, it only occasionally seems to sound like the Fugees themselves heard themselves. Two years later, in 1996, Lauren Wyclef and Praz are going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone with the headline, Are the Fugees the Future of Rock and Roll? I remember being mildly scandalized by that headline when I was 18. And in that cover story, Wyclef will lament that on Blunted on Reality, their label masters and producers did not understand what the group was going for, especially when it came to Wyclef's vocal style. Wyclef says he was told, you got to be more aggressive. You got to scream. Listen to Onyx. End quote. Yes, the Onyx that did slam. So here we have Wyclef Jean in 1994 on a song called Nappy Heads trying to rap the hook like he's an Onyx, the original version of Nappy Heads, not the remix. Alas. Why am I trapped in a cage? You know Wu-Tang Clan's Protect Your Neck? The classic jizzle line, who's your A&R, a mountain climber who plays the electric guitar. I quote that all the time. I can just picture the Fuji's early A&R guy fumbling through Foxy Lady on a Fender Stratocaster atop Mount Rainier before calling up Wyclef on a chunky satellite phone and being like, you should rap like the dudes in Onyx. Just stupendous artist mismanagement. No wonder these people don't trust anybody else. I have come to appreciate the blunted on reality record for those moments when the Fugees transcend their circumstances and ignore everyone else in the room. The far more celebrated Nappy Heads remix, for example, produced by Salam Remy, the Mona Lisa version. Here's what Lyclef sounds like when he's not goaded into grabbing the mic in a rage. So Mona Lisa, could I get a date on Friday? And if you're busy, I wouldn't buy tickets Saturday. And here comes Lauren Hill. The chemistry and really even the volatility between Wyclef, Lauren, and Praz is crucial to the Fuji's greatness. I'm not here to play favorites. 
I'm not here to be the billionth person to insist that she was the immediate breakout star and should have gone solo immediately because that was already happening, that kind of talk after their first record. What I will say is, especially by comparison, Warren does sound fully formed from the start. There's no warm up, no gestation period, no sitting around waiting for her to come into her own. Ignoring dopey A&R suggestions came as naturally to her as everything else did. Shout out Sublime. Vocab is another great song on Blunted on Reality. The beat's mostly just Wyclef on acoustic guitar. It's simple. It's perfect. It knocks you over with a feather. It's the Fugees. Plus, once again, the remix is even better. Yo, Let it be known that Lauren Hill was rapping, people think they really know me, and I pay the toll fighting for my own soul before she even got famous. Blunted on reality flopped. Didn't sell, didn't get great reviews, didn't succeed. Not shocking. Not a bad thing in the long run. It succeeded really in the sense that it did just well enough that the Fugees knew not to make another record like it, but they still got to make another record, which they called The Score. As in, it's time to settle the score. The score came out on the day before Valentine's Day in 1996. And it hit number one in the Billboard album chart, reigned as the best-selling rap album of all time for a while there, eventually sold 22 million copies worldwide, and made Wyclef Praz and especially Lauren super famous. Suddenly, they were the future of rock and roll. Can I tell you something that inexplicably really annoyed me about this album at the time? All the crosstalk at the beginning of Killing Me Softly with his song. I can't explain this or really defend it for that matter. It just sounded so cluttered and obnoxious to cluttered and obnoxious 18 year old me. Maybe it's an ADHD thing. I don't know. Why Clef all being like, hey, L, you know, you got the lyrics. All right. Okay. Of course she's got the lyrics. We get it. Get on with it. I got over it. You know why I got over it? Lauren Hill. Even Why Clef right there annoyed me. Why are you counting? Pipe down. Be glad you didn't know me when I was 18. Probably Killing Me Softly, of course, is where Lauren Hill once again does Roberta Flack justice. Roberta Flack's album, Killing Me Softly, which leads off with Roberta's then definitive version of the title track, came out in 1973. One thing to recommend about Roberta's version is that there ain't nobody counting in the background. Killing me softly. But this is not an Aretha Franklin stealing respect from Otis Redding situation. This is not a cheap, add a generic hip hop beat and call it a remake situation. This is two masterful singers, about a quarter century apart, agreeing with each other that singers, that songs can be terribly painful. Songs can be deadly. And it turns out the deadliest songs are the prettiest and the softest. Lauren's version doesn't improve or defeat or replace Roberta's version. It immortalizes it. With this 
Quick recommendation. I went back to that whole Roberta Flack album, Killing Me Softly, and I thought you might like to know that it ends with Roberta doing an incredible nearly 10-minute cover of Leonard Cohen's Suzanne. And her version is also immortal and immortalizing. Speaking of being killed softly. A lovely bit of symmetry, in my opinion, in terms of masterful singers communing with one another across space and time. Just thought I'd mention it. I don't think anybody wanted Leonard Cohen trying to hold that note. So earlier, I also mentioned Hanif Abdur-Aqib, who joined forces with a show called The 11th and did a wonderful podcast about the Fuji's second album called Time Machine, The Score, Sides A and B. He talks about seeing the Fuji's freestyling on Yo! MTV raps. He talks about Haiti, about what Praz and Wyclef represented as prominent Haitian rappers, as voices for refugees worldwide. Musa Kwanga wrote a great piece for The Ringer about what this album meant to refugees worldwide. The Fuji's might sound like a silly name, but the group did not pick that name randomly or wear it lightly. Hanif talks about the Booga basement in New Jersey, the actual basement of Wyclef's cousin's house where the vast majority of the score was recorded, how casual and chaotic and crucial an environment that was. The Booga basement was as important to the Fugees as the dungeon was to Outcast, as important as Tough Gong Studio was to Bob Marley. Hanif calls the Booga basement a place where you could be both brilliant and foolish. And Hanif, of course, talks about Lauren, about how growing up he'd play the score on cassette. He'd play the song Ready or Not on his Walkman over and over and make the six-minute walk from his house to the UDF. That's United Dairy Farmers Great Ice Cream. Try the Blue Moo cookie dough. And when Ready or Not ended, if he rewound the tape and stopped the tape right when Ready or Not started again, he'd stroll right through the UDF doors at the precise moment when Lauren rapped the following. I could do what you do. It's the only way to walk into a UDF. Get two scoops. Blue Moo cookie dough on top of butterscotch cookie. That, of course, is not Lauren Hill's most famous slash infamous line on Ready or Not. So why you imitating Al Capone? I be needing Simone and defecating on your microphone. I started subscribing to Rolling Stone in 1995 when I was 16. This may partly explain why I was so obnoxious. The cover stars of my first four issues were Eddie Van Halen. Belly, I love Belly, Tom Petty, and the cast of Friends. Anyway, as a consequence, to this day, I have random individual lines from random individual Rolling Stone articles rattling around in my head, which is why I can tell you that somebody in Rolling Stone at some point complained about this line specifically and said there had to be a better way to put it. I don't know if there was a better way to put it, though, is it the thing, though I should mention that Dream Hampton once said, I don't want to hear anyone say the word defecate anywhere near Nina Simone, ever. Okay, possibly there was a better way. Though, of course, while you're mulling that over, Lauren's already singing the Enya and Delphonics flipping hook to Ready or Not, and there was definitely not a better way to do that. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide, gonna find. Tough needle to thread here. I don't have any problem telling you that Lauren Hill is the breakout star of the score. That's not the hottest take you'll hear today. I don't have a problem telling you that my single favorite moment of harmony, musical or otherwise, on this record is actually Lauren singing the words aha uh -huh, along to herself during Ready or Not. 
Ready or not, oh, here I come. You can't hide. It's the way she leans into that first H in ha. Huh. But calling her the breakout star doesn't mean she abandons or defeats the rest of the band. The chemistry and volatility of the Fugees is crucial, and even more crucial if you're hell bent on ranking them or pitting them against one another from song to song, verse to verse moment to moment. The best Fuji songs at least give all three of them a shot at the crown. My jam lately is Zealots, also not a hot take. For the flip of flamingos, I only have eyes for you, of course. I haunt MCs like Mephistopheles, yeah. bringing swords adamically. Secret service keep a close watch as if my name was Kennedy. That's why Clef, shortly before he says your raps are cacophonic, meaning both noisy and Shitty? It sounds good when he says it. By this point, everything does. Same deal with Praz. Violence ain't necessary unless you provoke me, then get buried like the great Mussolini. And for you biting zealots, your rap stars are relics. No matter who you damage, you're still a force for See, Praz sounds great even when he's shouting out the great Mussolini. But even here, yeah, if you only remember one line from zealots, it's probably this one. And even after all my that line tees us up nicely for the miseducation of Lauren Hill, which is loaded up with logic and theory with nary a motherfucker in sight, unless you count the guys she's singing slash rapping to a decent percentage of the time. Here's the part, though, where I tell you that the first Fuji's extended universe record I ever truly loved was Wyclef's first solo album, The Carnival. From 1997. Excuse me. Wyclef Jean presents The Carnival. I loved this record. I still love this record. Who doesn't love Gone Till November? Wyclef raps, hip hop turns to the future of rock when I smash a pumpkin on that song. I was far less scandalized by that. I believed him by that point. I love Anything Can Happen. Who doesn't love Anything Can Happen? Anything can happen, every man got disciples, anything can happen. I thought the end of Anything Can Happen was the funniest thing I'd ever heard when I was 19. If you proud, shake what your mama gave you, hey. Whether you're fat or slim, bubble your ting. Fellas, if you need help, use ginseng. The Anything Can Happen video cuts off right there, or switches to a clip of his Stayin' Alive song right there, blew my mind. Hilarious. Ginseng. In my defense, I was still technically a teenager. Probably. I was underage for sure. So yeah, I was firmly in the Wyclef camp by 1998, which meant I was rooting for, allegedly, the guy who was about to get his ass kicked up and down the street during the first six minutes of the miseducation of Lauren Hill. It's funny how money changes situation. Miscommunication lead to complication. My emancipation don't fit your equation. I was on the humble you on every station. Okay, yikes. Miseducation begins with a vicious little tune called Lost Ones. It occurs to me that on Anything Can Happen, Wyclef had also rapped money break groups up like the five heartbeats. The Fugees are over at this point, save for the occasional one-off reunion deal. Hmm. We're in increasingly treacherous territory from here on out. As with Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know, or Carly Simon's You're So Vain for that matter, Lauren Hill who is generally very much not available for interviews, has never confirmed or denied who she is addressing on Lost Ones or who she is addressing on X Factor, for that matter. It is widely speculated. It is casually assumed at this point that she's talking about N2 Wyclef. 
with whom she had, allegedly, a clandestine romantic relationship. Okay. Yikes. Our good friend and fellow Ringer podcaster, Danielle Smith, host of the stupendous show Black Girl Songbook, devoted an entire episode to Lost Ones with a line-by-line breakdown to bolster Danielle's arguments that Lost Ones is the single greatest diss track in rap history. Better than Ether, better than Hit 'em Up, better than 10% diss, whatever. You got to check that episode out. Episode six of Black Girl Songbook, I believe. Danielle feels strongly about this. Danielle is convincing. Me, I'm struggling to think of a line in a rap song that flows as perfectly in terms of an arrangement of syllables as my emancipation don't fit your equation. Same deal actually with I know all the tricks from Bricks to Kingston. Someone play young Lauren like she done. But remember not to game the one of the sun. Everything you did has already been done. I know all the tricks from Bricks to Kingston. Yikes. One question leading up to the release of The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, was whether Lauryn's solo album would be more of a rap album or an R&B album. Clearly, she could do either. Clearly, she could do both. She could do both better than anybody doing either. The answer, if you're even invested in the rap R&B binary, is that Miseducation, to my mind, tilts more toward R&B. But Lauryn's decision to start her R&B tilted album with what could credibly be argued as the single greatest rap diss track of all time is a flex, if you'll forgive the term, or forgive me using the term. Can I tell you something that inexplicably really annoyed me about this album at the time? All the crosstalk at the beginning of doo-wop, that thing. I was still a curmudgeon at this point. One day in college, I was in a girl's dorm room. It was not an amorous or romantic situation or any way I lacked the charisma or wherewithal to turn it into a romantic situation. But she played doo-wop that thing for me in like a very solemn and ceremonial, this is the best song you'll ever hear in your life type way. When the song ended, she started it again. So I got to hear the crosstalk again. It sounded a little better to me the second time. The doo-wop chorus, of course, already sounded 50,000 times better. That exponential better every single time you hear it element is a huge part of the miseducation of Lauren Hill for me. Every song gets better every time. It's really something. I'll never get over Nothing Even Matters as long as I live. Me not grasping the full majesty of Nothing Even Matters the very first time I heard it, I'll never get over that as long as I live. Maybe this is going to happen to me with every single track on this record. I suspect my next favorite miseducation song is going to be I Used to Love Him with Mary J. Blige. Speaking of carrying rap conversant R&B into the 21st century, there's something so pleasing and tidy and symmetrical about the closed emotional loop of this chorus. Now I don't. I used to. Love him. Now I don't. You can't say it any better than that. Except Lauren already had. Who am I kidding? X Factor will always be my favorite Miss Education song, my favorite Lauryn Hill song. It's in the pantheon of my favorite songs of all time. 
For the Wu-Tang Clan reference, for starters, the sample of Can It Be All So Simple, for the acknowledgement that it's not simple and never could have been. 25 seconds in and this song is already colossal. X Factor is the second song on Miseducation. It is the mother of all chest pounding, slow burn R&B breakup ballads. Well, not the mother of all. There's tons of precedent. And her breaking out with a Roberta Flack song proves that Lauren knows all about the precedents. X Factor is the generational apex of all chest pounding, slow burn R&B breakup ballads. Put it this way. As Aretha Franklin owns the word respect, as Bobby Brown owns the word prerogative, as Janet Jackson owns the word escapade, so too does Lauren Hill own the word reciprocity. X Factor is also widely assumed to be about Wyclef Jean, about the disillusion of Lauren's relationship with Wyclef, romantically and otherwise. However, people who truly love and revere the song Lost Ones, right? To my mind, it's necessary that you know or think you know who Lost Ones is about. You need to picture exactly whose ass Lauren Hill is kicking up and down the street. Whereas X Factor, it enhances the song greatly, of course, if you've got a specific person in mind who Lauren is addressing in a gossipy Fleetwood Mac Taylor Swift naming names sense. But I think X Factor is heartbreaking and electrifying even if you keep Wyclef out of it. You can pretend she's singing to anybody, whoever she's singing to. This is one of the hardest lines in modern pop music history. The hardness of that line only reveals itself, though, later in the song when she tweaks the line ever so slightly. Quick production note, I'd like to shout out my subconscious. Did you see what I've been doing here? Did you figure it out before I did? I figured it out just now. Did you know that I've been running out the clock on this conversation? Shout out to my subconscious for providing me with, as of this exact moment, 6,154 words on the topic of Lauryn Hill and the Lauryn Hill song X Factor, which means that in terms of the space and time remaining, I have, let's say, less than 446 words to both finish rhapsodizing about X Factor and address the small matter of the last 20 plus years in the life and times of Lauryn Hill. If I turn in 7,000 words, my editor will have me arrested. I'm planning, at least, to cap this at 6,500 to be safe. 261 words left. 258. 257. I thought I wanted to talk to you in granular and possibly even grueling detail about the post-miseducation adventures and misadventures of Lauren Hill. Turns out I didn't, or my subconscious didn't. We're going to have to compress because for one thing, I'm not done queuing up individual Hall of Fame lines from X Factor yet. Because no one's hurt me more than you, and no one ever will. Is this song maybe about all the people, the millions of people who bought and loved and canonized the miseducation of Lauren Hill? And then insisted that Lauryn Hill make another album just like it or just as good as it 
and then another, and then another, and then another. Sing for us. 116 words. Lauren Hill tape MTV Unplugged in July 2001. The record came out in 2002. It's nearly two hours long. No songs for Miseducation. Save one Bob Marley cover. It's entirely new Lauren Hill songs with her on quite plaintive and repetitive acoustic guitar. Long songs. Interspersed with long strings of stage banter. The longest of which is 12 minutes long. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. She talks about how she's not really a performer anymore. She doesn't dress up for us anymore. She's not held hostage by what everyone else does anymore. Her public persona held her hostage. She had to do some dying and so on. Actually, it defeats the purpose if I paraphrase this, doesn't it? I don't know, you know, what the press is saying because I don't really listen to the press too much, but I know that, you know, it, the view is I'm like emotionally unstable, which is reality, like, like you aren't, you know, but it's like... See, I was going to get deep into the exceedingly raw 2003 Rolling Stone article written by the enormously respected hip-hop journalist Teray that bore the headline, The Mystery of Lauren Hill, which gets into quite harrowing detail. Speculation about Lauren's relationship with Wyclef, about her pregnancy with Zion, about the shadowy religious guru who allegedly transformed every aspect of her life and shut out many of the other people in her life. Praz, on the record, calls Wyclef the cancer of the Fugees. An anonymous industry insider summarizes what we're told as the prevailing industry view of Lauren Hill's unplugged record, which flopped and which is to date the last record Lauren Hill released. This industry insider says, a lesser artist, it would never have been released. A lesser artist would have been shot and thrown out the window. That's rude, to say the least, but it only proves Lauren's own point. See, I know what we've got to do. You let go, and I'll let go too. I'm laughing because 
what I realize I'm, I've become is one of those mad scientists who, who does the tests on themselves first, you see, to make sure that they work. And that's when you know, okay, look, I got something that works. After that, Lauren plays a song called I Find It Hard to Say, parentheses, Rebel. She says it was inspired initially by the NYPD shooting of Amadou Diallo in 1999. But see, I'm already way over my time. No time to tell you about when I saw Lauren Hill at a supremely chaotic 2007 outdoor show in Brooklyn where she didn't take the stage for hours. And when she did, she played almost heavy metal versions of miseducation songs that unnerved and pissed people off to the point where a bunch of teenage girls behind me started singing the chorus to doo-wop that thing mid-show during some other song, almost like a protest. Or the other time, a couple years later, when I saw Lauren play the Blue Note, a tiny jazz club in the West Village, and what appeared to be the married couple I was sitting next to, two very genial and excited 30-something people out on a date who left in disgust before Lauren even went on, because Lauren was, at that point, already two hours late. 82 words left, 7,000, no time for that. Only time left to play you the best part of X Factor. I was going to make fun of Drake, of course. Big plans I had, but subconsciously, I guess this is where I wanted to leave you. With the X Factor moment that blew me away the very first time I heard it and blew me away again at that outdoor Brooklyn show, surrounded by furious Lauren Hill fans, when she finally got around to playing a furious version of it. I broke 7,000 words, of course. I'm talking to you from jail. But I got you and left you where I wanted to be and where I thought you needed to be. That's what Lauren Hill did, too. We are honored today to be joined by Daphne A. Brooks. She's a professor of African-American studies, American studies, women's gender and sexuality studies, and music at Yale. Her most recent book is called Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Thanks so much for being here today, Daphne. Delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. I, I was wondering, first of all, what do you remember about hearing Lauryn Hill's voice for the first time? Like before you knew the legend of Lauryn Hill, the rise and the fall and the rise of Lauryn Hill, all the controversy and discourse. Like, what did you make of her back then? Just as a new rapper and singer, you didn't know much about yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't encounter her the way some people did initially in Sister Act 2, in Mm -hmm. part because I was boycotting Whoopi movies after Jumping Jack Flash. So (laughs) Valid. Valid, right? I tried mm-hmm. to avoid ghosts, couldn't. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, you know, but she absolutely crushed it, especially with it, just a, a half a reading of His Eyes on the Sparrow and Sister mm-hmm. Act 2. But I didn't, I didn't hear that. I mean, it was really, I had to think about this, and it was in the run-up to the scores released, right? So that would have been in late 95, first single, anthemic, super melodic, Fuji La. 
uh, by spring of 96, Killing Me Softly was just mm. saturating the airwaves, of course. And also yeah. really, really super importantly, all over MTV, right? Mm. But if you picked up the score, even before that moment, you were encountering this hip hop album that was sui generis mm-hmm. in particular because of the absolute, you know, stop you in your tracks, commanding vocality of Lauren Hill and her, you know, kind of combination of this rich contralto R&B vocality that was super virtuosic, rich with vibrato and drama and feeling. And at the same time, just a mad MC with, you know, (laughs) right. With immaculate flow and really kind of a hypnotic, you know, and compelling delivery. And when I got the score, talk about stop you in your tracks, the hook for ready or not. That's the one for me. Yeah. Right. It's so haunting. It just sort of conjures a feeling of awe and sublimity. Mm -hmm. There's almost a kind of sort of cosmic quality to it. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. It's hard for me to picture anyone else in 1996 who could have saturated MTV with a cover of a Roberta Flack song, Mm -hmm. right? Like, was there an old soul quality to Lauren from the beginning for you? Definitely. I mean, we also have to keep in mind, right, proud Gen Xer that I am, um, (laughs) (laughs) that this is like the great neo-soul cover song for the ages and neo-soul as we know, is this subgenre that flourishes in the 90s as Black Gen Xers are coming of age and really embracing the music that they grew up with, the classic soul era of Roberta and Stevie and Marvin, et cetera, et cetera, Donny Hathaway. Hills, not only her kind of stylistic delivery, the aesthetics of her singing, but the song itself took us back to these moments of our childhood kind of intimacies. It's really like black living room music. <laughs> and as kids say now, you know, music of the cookout. <laughs> so, you know, right. So there's yeah. a way that, right. There is an, there's definitely an old soul quality to her vocalizing and it, it's everything else, all the bells and whistles. And I don't say that pejoratively that come along that moment. As for the Fugees as a whole, like, why did the Fugees work so well together, the three of them? Like, is tension and volatility and, like, hostility and eventual collapse, like, are those necessary elements of a great hip-hop group or a rock band or whatever? Were the, were the Fugees just Fleetwood Mac by other means? Yeah, or, or do we need a do we need a get back for the score? You know? <laughs> we do. Do we, need, we, like, abso- we do. We absolutely do. Six hours. Right? Six right? hours. Yes. Um, Yeah, sure. I mean, I I have to be honest. I didn't follow a lot of the drama around the Fugees. You couldn't, you couldn't really escape it, especially if you watched MTV as much as all of us did back then. I guess, sure. The, the, the drama and the tensions within the group. And then of course, famously the legendary, you know, intimacies that fell apart between Wyclef Sean and, and Lauren Hill are significant and become, you know, the, the literal grist for the miseducation of Lauren Hill. So, so sure. Right. right. Intimate group drama. Yeah. Do you listen to Miseducation for pleasure now? Like, where does this record sit in your own personal canon at this point? What has been your journey with it for these 20 years? Yeah, I still listen to it. I, as someone who, you know, teaches classes on popular music studies, I teach it often and I consider it to be one of the greatest albums of all time. I still do. I still do. I still do. 
what do you teach? Like, what is, mm. what do you want your students to know about this record? Yeah. Okay. Let's get wonky academic for Please. a minute here, right? Let's do it. Right. Let's do it. Yeah. I often taught it early on as kind of our first modern pop black feminist Bildungsroman, Bildungsroman, mm -hmm. meaning novel of development, a la David Copperfield, right? Mm -hmm. And that the kind of the, the structure of the record allowed for this, you know, really dense journey, emotional interior journey that the protagonist yeah. goes on towards self-discovery and mm -hmm. that the, the culture had not held a space for that for a young mm. black woman in popular music culture ever like yeah. that before, ever like that before. I mean, it drew on, you know, the history of popular music culture, everything from the Supremes. Think about that doo-wop video, you know, mm -hmm. through Roberta Flack and Aretha and of course yeah. Nina, right? But it pulled mm -hmm. it all together into the context of hip hop culture and allowed all of these different sides of her character to come forward and to wrestle with the meaning of what it meant to be, you know, African-American and a woman in America in the late 1990s. It's just it's an extraordinary record. It's an extraordinary record. Do your students take convincing to be convinced <laughs> that it's a masterpiece? No, like, how's that? No, they're Good. actually really astonished that a work like this exists. Yeah. You okay. know, and I want to give a really serious shout out to someone like the great hip hop, black feminist hip hop critic, Joan Morgan, who's written the right. defamative, you the know, book, full length right. book. Um, she begat this on uh, miseducation. But no, I think they're kind of, it's sort of like, I'm trying to think of what an analogy would be. They're just kind of, floored by the fact that this existed in some space and time because right. you know really we have we've had nothing like it since then and i say that unfortunately not as an old geezer <laughs> you know i have a lot of reasons why i think systemically you know the 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 culture couldn't hold you know a place for something like this again right there's mm. a reason why you know, Lauren Hill and I think maybe Natalie Cole, Unforgettable, are the, mm -hmm. you know, those are the last two black women artists to have albums of the year. So, I mean, I, I, I think that they're, it's like a gem. It's like a hidden gem for them. Sure. Cause they know, maybe they know the singles, but they don't know like the full album, as the you say, the album. arc. Right. Okay. And, and, and let's just, you know, I mean, in terms of hip hop skits, and we've, we've been to the Nader many <laughs> times with it to take the, the to, right, to take the genre of the hip hop sketch and turn it into just black radical tradition pedagogy, right? You the know, kids. The, yeah, right? the yeah. kids, the meaning mm -hmm. of love and community, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, this is like, let's go cliche, but these are kind of timeless topics, but yeah. meant something very specific in the late 1990s, as they do now with regards to, you know, the extent to which black lives matter. It's the same way that they reacted when Prince died. And we know that mm. they, they didn't have access to Prince's music on streaming. No, they <laughs> so didn't. They, they were trying to make sense of the fact that you know, all their professors and their parents were crying all the time. And then yeah. they were like, oh my God, <laughs> what, what, what the fuck? This is pretty good. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not just this is pretty good, but this person did things that we are trying to identify as being important in our lives right now. Right. And I can't believe that this happened already. Right. Yeah. Why can't it be a consistency in our lives to have many Lauren Hills, to have many princes? You no. Know?
So when that window closes for another record like this, like what does that sound like, feel like, look like? Like what is happening in the early mid 2000s that prevents her or anyone like her from creating another record, anything like Miseducation? Wow, that's such a great question. I don't know. I mean, I think let's not let's not leave out she whose name we should always speak, but what Yance did you know, in mm-hmm. the early aughts. Lemonade's the closest. Right? Lemonade's the closest, but it's also distinct. But I remember, like, there were some stories of, uh, there was like a gig that Lauren did on Governor's Island. I want to say, like, the twenty early 2010s, and Beyonce was there. And I read something online about her talking about really just, you know, studying and being in awe, you know, and really, like, giving props yeah. to the, you know to the ones who paved the way as she often does. But that's a, that's a distinct kind of thing that she mm-hmm. did. There's the dream Hampton quote about how critics and fans like really screwed up artists like Lauren Hill and D'Angelo by telling them they were geniuses, right? Like the theory anyway, is we told Lauren Hill, she was Nina Simone and she started believing it. We told D'Angelo he was Marvin Gaye and he started believing it. Like, do you agree with that at all? Like, do we screw up our best artists by telling them they made masterpieces and now they have to follow up masterpieces. I love Dream Hampton. Mad props yeah. to Dream Hampton. My gut feels like the problem is the the culture itself hmm. rather than the artist that there ought to be a way to imagine more space for Lauren Hills and D'Angelo's to be able to operate on as the Dylan is eccentric. Why can't hmm. they Right. You know, do a post motorcycle accident (laughs) underground, you know, right. So there's, there's a way in which obviously we know that historically black artists have been given a very narrow space in which to thrive and to be successful, to be legible as successful. You know, there are larger kinds of just structural issues that we need to tend to, to allow for a multiplicity of ways in which black artists can tap into their creativity. It should be okay for them to be called Nina Simone and Marvin Gaye. You know, it really should. That should not, that should not be, there's a, there's a problem fundamentally, right? With, Mm. with the culture itself, if being called that is going to be destructive. Right. I was thinking just this morning about Dave Chappelle and how Lauren and Dave in the early to mid 2000s, like they both abruptly stopped doing what everyone wanted them to do. Dave walks away from Chappelle's show. Lauren refuses to follow up miseducation. You know, Dave is back now. He's very prolific. He's driving everybody nuts. What do you think Lauren wanted or needed from the world at large to help her keep making albums? And like, what albums did you think she would have made in the 2000s and beyond if she'd had the right structure in place to support her? As divisive as Unplugged is, if there had been a space to (laughs) imagine a a Black artist, no matter what gender, being able to critique racial capitalism and the exploitativeness of the industry and, and be affirmed for doing that, then we probably would have gotten more more unplugged or maybe unplugged would have been just a bridge to a broader experimental palette that she, you know, was clearly deeply interested in tapping into. That unplugged record really scared and like disturbed people. Scared and disturbed are the words. They really are. There's a terrific scholar, Lamar Bruce, who's written extensively about the unplugged album and the ways Hmm. in which that kind of elixir of 
presumed madness, and I'm using scare quotes here. Well, and right. Gen- she and says genius. it herself. She yeah. does. She's like, go ahead and go ahead and call me crazy because then you'll leave me alone. Yes, is what she right? says. In right. Yeah. And early on, the call out to the people inside her head. And, right, right. You know, right. I don't dress that way anymore. So, you know, the kind of, you know, just sharp critique of the industry's commodification of, you know, the product at all levels with regards to artistry were terrifying, right? To, mm-hmm. to everybody and confusing because popular music culture continuously reproduces these kinds of protocols that we are asked to consume and to, to read as being, you know, palatable and legible mm-hmm. and desirable. And she was about, as we like to call it in academia, these radical refusals, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But so was Dylan. Right, right. You know, so of course we have to think about which kinds of artists are allowed to engage. To be radical. Yeah. Yeah. And to be experimental, you Mm -hmm. know, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you know, a moment in which we can really think more about. And and this is why it's also significant to keep Nina in the room with us to really think about the history of black women's pop experimentalism and, and what what the culture is willing to tolerate. And it's why Lemonade is so brilliant and so shrewd because it did really kind of manage to fold in all of these different kinds of formalistic, you know, sonic and, and, and lyrical and vocal and visual experimentalism within the context of a kind of iconicity that people were already willing to accept and welcome into their A pop roles. record. A pop right. record, exactly, yeah. yeah. Have you seen Lauren Hill live? Yes, many times. This was actually, I'm glad you asked me this before the show because I had to think about it. It's striking how many times I've seen her and some of the, the concerts I can't remember in great detail. But the first time I saw her was on the Miseducation Tour. This would have been, I'm, I'm a Bay Area West Coaster, so this would have been in Oaktown. Excellent. Like circa 90, probably 99, I think, when the tour hit the West Coast mm-hmm. um, at the Fox Theater downtown. The Fox, awesome. Yeah, right, man? Beautiful. And the thing that stood out to me about that concert was not only the tightness of the set. I mean, she was really, you know, skewing heavily towards performing the album at that point. It was the the audience, the fact that outside of a Prince concert, I'd never seen a more multiracial audience in my life. And hmm. it was okay. historically for me the first time that I'd ever seen such a deeply diverse audience showing up for a black woman performer. In Oakland. Yeah. In Oakland, right? I mean, you know, and, and let's just go there, just white boys who were, <laughs> who were showing up for Lauryn Hill. Yeah. And uh-huh. I think this is significant because sure. it, there was a way in which her serious, the seriousness of, of how people treated her as an artist of, you know, excellence, you know, the, the music wonkery, the Rolling Stonery, you know, mm-hmm. were all about her. <laughs> and, you know, the other point I'll, I want to make about this, this is that, this was also the moment when I remember it was the first time that somebody like a white female actor, Jenna Malone, who was part of kind of it prestige films of the time. She was on Letterman, which I watched religiously, huh. and sure. she talked about loving Lauren Hill. And really? I could not remember a teen white girl ever yeah. talking about a black woman artist that way. Unless it was Mariah Carey and they didn't know she was black at the time. You know, this was before Mariah's journey, right? (laughs) Yeah. There was something about her 
crossover appeal and a particular kind of crossover that of course has something to do with hip hop in that moment, but also about who Lauren Hill was as a singer songwriter with just mad gravitas that just Mm -hmm. hit a bunch of demographics really hard. Sure. What did you make of Lauren Hill live when she stopped tightly performing the record, right? Like most people, when they say they've seen her live, they either say it was fantastic or it was a disaster with very little middle ground at all. Like, have you been to those like fantastic or disaster type shows where, you know, X Factor is 20 minutes and so (laughs) forth? Like what what were those like for you? Um, I actually have. And um, I saw her in Brooklyn outdoors at some kind of a thing. This would have been summer of 2001 when I was moving to the East coast. It was before unplugged had come out, come out, but it was definitely one of the sets that was leading up to unplugged. And it was, you know, a black Brooklyn audience. And Mm. there was a lot of silence, you know, (laughs) there was a a lot of, it was just like incredulity and also, you know, something deeply illegible about, what was happening, you know, from again, the, the fashion refusals to the fact that she was also playing largely, almost entirely new material, you know, non miseducation material. Sure. And then there was the moment in like the early aughts when I saw her several times um, in downtown New York and she was famously quite late. Yes. <laughs> Tracks that just went on and on and on. The two times that I've seen her most recently that are kind of a fusion of all those things. One was in 2015 at the Apollo. It was a set in conjunction with the premiere of the documentary, Liz Garbus's documentary, Whatever Happened, Miss Simone. Right. The Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2018, she, I was in Cleveland for the Nina posthumous induction ceremonies at the Rock Hall. And she did a short set there. And the, and the thing about those two sets is that the sound quality was so poor mm. that I, yeah, yeah. Right. And I mean, God Sorry. bless the Apollo, but I, yeah. I, I don't know. Ugh. So to what extent it was about the engineering and the, the technicians she was working with or whatever, but yeah. it was very hard to make out what was happening. And that combined with the Miles Davis back to the audience, deep conductor, unapologetic. I don't give a fuck yeah. kind of tood. It just left you feeling some kind of way, you know? Yes. And her as well, I imagine. Yeah, that's it's it's tough. Somebody wrote in the New Yorker, it's like I have been I have waited six hours combined for Lauren Hill to walk on stage. I always thought that was it's about two, it's about four or five for me. I don't think it's quite six, but I've seen her just a couple times and still it's like two plus hours per. Yeah, that I've waited and yeah. it's been worth it. But yeah, it's, yes. that's a, that's a huge part of the experience. Yes, it at is. this point. I wanted to ask you about Drake. I know who, you do. Yes. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't speak to it. I really can't. Okay. Okay. I, okay. I know. I mean, I'm interested sure, in what you fine. have to say. Well, so Drake has the whole Aaliyah thing, right? right. Where he was going to make, and like everyone yelled at him until he didn't put out the Aaliyah album he was yes. going to put out. And like, Nice for What, which samples X Factor, is yes. probably my favorite Drake song in the past, yes. whatever, five years. But it's it's it seems clear to me, I've read this a lot, that like Drake had something very specific from this era of R&B, from like the 90s R&B giants. Like there's some emotional quality. That's true. 
And it's just, it's a little bit creepy. It's a little <laughs> bit sincere. And I, everyone's trying to figure out what his deal is, the way that he uses Lauren and Aaliyah to convey something very specific, something he wants us to know about himself. It's confusing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't want to front like I'm, you know, deep in Drakeology, you know? It's, it's better um, for you that you're not, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm fond of him. And I love the Atlanta episode where they're pursuing him. <laughs> yes. Beyond kind of my reading of his persona as being one that is driven by emotional, I don't want to say turmoil, but complexity and mm -hmm. a kind of commodification of black masculine and hip hop tenderness is kind of, especially since LL just rolled into the rock hall finally um you know there's a little bit of a legacy of ll there and yeah, so there, totally. yeah right so there's there's i think that kind of affinity for the um the kinds of contradictions and insecurities and you know a lot of that real yeah. struggles that lauren was able able to map out in in hip-hop in a way that had not been done before you could kind of i think on on that level you know there's a little bit of distaff lauren in in drake or at least yeah. that's what we could see him aspiring towards i hadn't really thought see, of that that's, that's you got it you just figured it out interesting on the fly yeah there. you did that's... it you did it <laughs> <laughs> In your book, in liner notes for the revolution, you write about Lauren's song, Black Rage, uh, an unreleased track, I guess, she put on Twitter after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson in 2014. I'd forgotten about this song. Like It's terrifying, right? It, it takes the melody of my favorite things, black human packages tied up in strings. Like, Do we not talk about this song enough as recent protest anthems go? We don't. We should. You know, it's it's extraordinary. It is. It is. It really is stunning. I mean, it's lyrically stunning. It's also just, again, you know, a way in which she showcases her her deep immersion in black musical history, because this is also a callback to John Coltrane's mm -hmm. cover of My Favorite Things recorded in um, the, the run of the civil rights movement. Yeah. You know, it's it's a disturbance of the ways in which whiteness you know, creates these notions of safety and contrast that with black precarity. It's a brilliant song. And in the ways that we were talking about her unpredictable live sets, you can find several different versions of the performance online. Um, they sure. all feel a little bit different. And I think that's that's a sign of her genius. Yeah because she really lives inside of that song when she is rendering this 400 story of, you know, mm -hmm. captivity and Jim Crow um, subjugation and non-citizenship for black folks. Every, you need a thousand ways of, 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 of interpreting that song. And she gives right. it to us. And she does it. Is the Lauren Hill story fundamentally a tragedy or is she doing what she wants? And like her biggest fans just think it's a tragedy because she won't do what they want her to do. It's a tragedy for pop that we don't mm. have a more heterogeneous, lively and daring way of imagining black women artists. I don't want to call her story tragic. I actually would love for her to you know, be able to define define her story on her own terms. Yeah. Daphne, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say the word Bildungsroman out loud before. <laughs> and I'm so glad it was you. And I'm um, so glad to talk to you today. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a blast. Thanks so much, Rob. 
Thanks very much to our guests this week, Daphne A. Brooks. Thanks to our producers, Devin Ronaldo and Justin Sales. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, here's Lauren Hill with X Factor. See you next week. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.